through more Wiggins. Uh, whoever's going the fastest. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in because we're about to begin. I, I, I got something to say, man. Yo, welcome to episode 36 of the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who doesn't care as long as it's one of them. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist. And I want to get straight into an iTunes review this week from MACC Mike. Damien does his homework. Great info. Five stars. As someone who has never seriously trained for performance goals, I find this resource to be very helpful in my planning and motivation to compete in various types of cycling events, mountain bike, road and cross. Keep up the good work. I am definitely spreading the word about semi-pro cycling. Thank you for the review, Mike. It means so much to me that you took your time out to go there, and I'm glad you are enjoying the show. And a reminder to everybody listening that if you want to take some time out because you like the show, just head over to iTunes and drop a review in there. I will love you a lot more. Also, you can check me out on Instagram at my personal account. Just search for my name, and you'll find some pictures of where I ride. The news this week, Milan San Remo, one word, epic. Epic as in the meaning of epic before rapper got a hold of it. I'm not sure where I read that, but I think it's perfect. But anyway, it was epic. There was snow. There was rain. There was a stoppage. It turned out to have a solid ending and a surprise winner. Well played, sir. But the biggest news for me was the influx of aero helmets met Lima, Specialized, Giro, Cask, Laser, Scott. We're going to new helmets, Cook. Uh, bit of a time warp. Stepping back to my uh, childhood. Feel like I've got a stack hat on from 1984. That's Baden Cookie Cook talking about his new Scott Aero helmet. And if you're not Australian, you don't know what the reference to stack hat is. But I've got to say that I had helmets when they first came in under law in Australia, which was around 91, 92, and it was just beyond the stack hat era, and it was called a Headway 701. I would Google it because it looks exactly the same as Garmin's Air Attack do right now. Same color, everything. It wasn't until Giro's Air Attack debuted last year that we started seeing dedicated road aero helmets. What is your take, and would you wear one? Me, I'm not sold on them yet. And I would also check out the Inner Ring article about aerodynamics this week. It talks about riding aero bikes with a flapping jacket or something like that, but I think you get the idea. And moving on to Andy Schleck. Andy Schleck, drunk in a Munich airport hotel, reported by Inner Ring. Andy got interviewed here, and right here he's calling it ridiculous, and maybe it is, but is it just me, or does he not go out of his way to actually deny it? So the nuts and bolts this week, maintaining fitness and detraining quickness. Well, I just put it in there because it rhymed, but basically what I want to talk about today is what happens to your fitness when you stop training and how you can maintain it under different from normal conditions. We all worry about time off the bike. I know, I certainly do. 
I am concerned after I've put in time to get hard-earned fitness as to what will happen to that fitness as soon as I take some time off the bike. Surrounding this topic, there are a lot of urban myths when it comes to what, how, and when of losing fitness. So today, I'm going to try and clear it up for you. It may give you some peace of mind the next time you decide to take time off mid-season or you're forced off the bike involuntarily, either through injury, family, or work commitments. Technically, the name of this is detraining. It sounds a bit funny, right? Because it's a technical term for doing nothing. But it links into the idea that you are a full-time athlete. Semi-pro or not, we are full-time 24-7 because every decision we make affects our riding. It's food, it's sleep, it's everything else. So if you look at an entire year in this sense, it makes perfect sense to think about any time off the bike as detraining because slowly your body is unraveling all of the training that you've put into it and all of the systems that you have specifically spent time training start to then fall apart. Having planned detraining is a very important part of your yearly schedule. And yes, that plays a part in resetting for a new season, but it also works when we're talking about unplanned three-day, five-day, 10-day periods where we can't train, or even longer, two-week, four-week, on and on and on and on. Before I move on any further, this is also related to tapering. But really, that's a whole other discussion for another day, and I file that under form equals fitness plus freshness. But detraining, detraining is defined as the partial or complete loss of anatomical, physiological, and performance adaptations induced by training. As a consequence of training reduction or cessation, it's also not solely limited to physical abilities, but also affects technical skills. So what happens when? I've gone through a lot of studies to come up with a guide of what happens during the training, noting the major changes usually in terms of percentage loss. There are a couple of things to keep in mind here, though. The studies do not agree. Like most scientific studies, there is a discrepancy between their reported findings. So I've either taken a range or an average approach. Also, these ranges apply across individuals and individual situations. It's hard to give you a concrete number since we're all so different. So using the numbers as a guide would be a good way to benchmark your actual results of detraining if you could ever get them tested. So two or three days off the bike should have little impact and may even result in slight improvements as your body recovers from hard training. Because when you're in hard training, you're perpetually fatigued, so a short break allows your body to recover and adapt to your previous training. The only real dip that occurs is your beta endorphin and adrenaline levels drop, so your mood is affected negatively. Days three to five, muscles lose elasticity. That's if you're not doing anything at all. It gets a little heavier once you start talking about seven to nine days off. Your body's ability to use oxygen, VO2 max, drops by four to 10% in well-trained athletes. And apparently it declines in a roughly linear fashion. Therefore, less oxygenated blood is pumping around with each beat. So that's where you really start to suffer. Also, there is an 8% loss of force. Day 10, your body's metabolic rate begins to drop, which means eat less or you will gain weight. 
Days 11 to 13, maximum heart rate and cardiac output decline by 15%, and your muscle tone sees its first appreciable loss. Days 14 to 16, so I've hit two weeks now of inactivity. Your mitochondrial activity, your energy production in muscle cells begins to decrease rapidly. Loss of muscle mass, strength, and metabolic rate occurs. Days 17 to 19, your body becomes less efficient at thermoregulation. You are forced to spend excess energy cooling off. Now we move into three weeks, days 20 to 21, and your VO2 max has dropped by about 20 to 25%. The interesting thing here, though, is strength is still maintained at this point. So your strength is still similar to when you stepped off the bike three weeks ago, but we're talking about your cardiovascular endurance now dropping by up to a quarter That to me is absolutely massive. Now, 27 to 29, so this is around the four-week mark. Studies have shown that strength gains are largely retained for about four weeks with no training. Strength decreases from the fourth week. So this is now where strength starts to take a dip. So with the loss of strength comes more loss in force of around 16%. Also, other things to note, Lactic anaerobic metabolism is stable for the first four weeks, so there's really no change there. And metabolic downturns can occur quite quickly. So glycogen is the key here as it's the primary fuel source for exercise. By ceasing to train, you attack your metabolism from two sides. Firstly, the body stops becoming so effective at converting glucose to glycogen. Muscle glycogen concentration is decreased by 20% after just four weeks of inactivity in trained athletes. And eight weeks, strength loss is reported to be at around 7% at this stage. So it's not super great. And strength does seem to hold on a lot longer. But this is really where you'll start to see a decrease in your strength. Your VO2 max remains at about that 20 to 25% after eight weeks. So that is steady at this stage. And your muscle fiber distribution remains unchanged for the first weeks after stopping. But it takes up to eight weeks. So this is where you could start to see changes where your slow twitch fibers, so important for endurance athletes, start to convert to fast twitch. At 12 weeks, your strength has decreased by 12%. And I'll stop there. So that's three months worth. I'm not sure really if you can get a clear picture from all of that. It seems a little muddled and it's a bit hard to portray just by speaking about it. But overall, it really popped out to me that it's not as bad as I thought. Yes, you're going to get zapped of your VO2 max goodness if you're super fit, but most other elements will stick around for at least four weeks. So you're not losing strength for four weeks, which means that you should be maintaining some sort of strength work up until your peak. But depending on what you're doing, there's always ways to maintain fitness over short periods of time. So I'm not talking about three months of just lying on your back. Yes, there may be times when you're injured that that is the case. But outside of that, there are things that you can definitely do to maintain your fitness. So we're not necessarily talking about increasing fitness here because that takes a planned, structured 
program with consistency. But there are ways that have been proven through studies that enable you to maintain your fitness. So the bottom line here that if you can maintain some type of fitness over the time periods where you're less able to train, you will be able to maintain fitness. Huh. What to do then to maintain this fitness? So depending on why you aren't training, like I said, will really depend on what you can do to maintain this fitness. It also depends on other things like the weather. So what I'll stick to is just some basic guidelines so you can get a picture of your head of how you can adapt this to your training. When I started looking into this stuff, there wasn't really a lot of information around the volume of training. So the volume of training can be thought of more as the amount of hours that you're actually on the bike. This must be the case because everybody points to intensity as the key to maintaining fitness. So it's claimed that fitness losses can be minimized if you keep the intensity of your training going, even if you have to drastically cut the volume, which is good news because if you're not able to train for whatever reason it is, then the volume is going to be the first thing that will go because it's generally the hardest thing to maintain in regards to the time commitment that it takes. So maintenance of training intensity is the key factor in retaining induced physiological and performance adaptions during periods of reduced training, whereas training volume can be reduced by around 60 to 90% without having a huge effect. So if you go on holiday in a base or a build phase of your training, then a few weeks of less hours is fine so long as you're doing high-intensity short rides to compensate. At this point, it's not about getting fitter, though. Like I said, this is all about maintaining and not losing fitness so you can pick up where you left off as soon as you're able to train normally again. It might also leave you refreshed mentally for another bout of hard training so you can make better gains when it does come to that time. Here is an important point though. Decreasing volume is fine, but you should take care not to decrease training frequency by more than 20 to 30%. So what this looks like practically is if you normally train six days a week, you're better off riding four short, sharp rides per week. Another example is if you're training five days per week, then you're better off maintaining a minimum of three days per week on your adjusted schedule. It's not just limited to the bike though, because if you are traveling for work, you're not going to necessarily take your bike with you. There are other things you can do, and running is another option, as well as any other winter sports that simulate the physiological response that cycling does and really just gets your heart up and you can maintain that heart rate for a longer time. It will help you to slow down that loss of fitness. So for an example here, if you normally train five days a week on your bike and then you have to adapt for one week away, running three times per week for around 20 minutes to an hour, if you throw in some harder efforts there to push your heart rate up and breathing levels up, that will really keep your body ticking over and help you to maintain that fitness. This is the idea, if we step back again and think about our entire year, this is the idea that cross-training does, where it is stimulating the important physiological adaptions that you want to make during training so that you can ride better and you can maintain endurance and strength and whatever it is. But just doing it in a different way gives some of your body a break from the strain that just doing one sport places on your different muscles and joints and brain and motivation as well. So I'll wrap it up right now, and this is what you can do to maintain fitness when you just are unable to train. Reduce the amount of training 
volume. So like I said, it's the first thing to go. Don't be afraid to reduce the training volume. Uh, Maintain some measure of intensity and decreasing frequency only moderately. So up the intensity and only slightly reduce the frequency and cross-train in sports that are similar or even dissimilar as long as they still have the aerobic benefits and that will cross over to your cycling. So really, it's not as bad as you think. And to kind of prove that, I came across an article in Pez Cycling News that references a 14-year difference between testings to see the effects of detraining over that time period. The interesting thing about it here is, is it's done on big MIG. So it's Miguel Indurain, 14 years after retirement, and the article breaks down the differences between where he was when he was at pretty much his peak and then where he was 14 years later, which this was done three years ago. So it's still quite relevant. And the interesting thing here is that he didn't necessarily just stop the bike. So he was doing around 24,000 miles, I think is quoted. And after a lax five years or so where he was only riding one or two times per week, he started then doing six to 8,000 miles a year over six months of warmer weather where he lives. And so he wasn't actually riding all year round, but he was still putting in a fair amount of effort. And that was actually combined with doing at least two 100 plus sportifs per year. So it's not like he was just sitting on the couch the entire time, but he was a freak. I don't know if you have ever delved into Big Mig, but he was an absolute freak at his peak. And there were so many urban myths flying around about what he was capable of, what his resting heart rate is, his maximum heart rate. And so just seeing the numbers here are really, really interesting. The testing that was done, and this is the big caveat, which the protocols and the equipment are different. So there will be some variation here. But to get an idea of over 14 years, how someone that maintains some type of fitness really doesn't lose that much. Now, this is still quite relative, but I think it's very impressive that he only rides six months a year and he's 14 years out from retirement, but he's still able to maintain a 57 VO2 max and a maximum heart rate of 191. His maximum aerobic power is 450 watts, which is 4.88 watts a kilo, which is very impressive. His blood lactate reached 11.2, his lactate threshold 330 to 360 watts. That is super impressive considering he was 92.2 kilos when he did this test. So with that weight, it corresponds to around nearly 4 watts a kilo. In 94, it was more like 7 watts a kilo for his threshold. So he really hasn't lost that much. We're talking about 12% per decade as far as his VO2 max number goes. And the really interesting thing here is that it was his post-retirement weight gain that impacted the results much more than the actual physiological changes, which shows the importance of dropping that weight. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking about getting on the bike again after a bit of a ride, just know it's going to hurt at first, yes, but overall it might not be as bad as you think. Okay, let's get to the tech hacks and products section. And this week, it is a hack. It's a hack this week that is not that obvious because it's not directly related to the bike, but it relates to the idea of Athlete 24-7. It's an hour-long video by Kelly Starrett. I think you've heard me talk about him before in regards to mobility and stability. 
he does a speech at Google focusing on the desk-bound person and what they can do to help their body while they're at a desk. He comes away with three points, and I'll give you the three points, but I highly recommend you check out the video for the details of what he's actually talking about. I don't know if you're a desk jockey. I certainly am, and so I hunted around, and when I found this, it was amazing in its simplicity, but I really think it's going to make a difference to my cycling if I can put these things into practice. And so the first thing is water, drinking a lot of water. Now, I knew this, and I have spoken about this before, but what he recommends is dropping salt into the water for better absorption. He's saying that a lot of people are falling into this trap of drinking water with nothing in it, and it's not actually doing anything except making you go to the toilet all day long. And so dropping salt in there is going to help with absorption. I'm going to check this out. I want to do my own study to see how much I'm actually going in and how much is coming out. I'll let you know how that goes to see whether salt actually makes a difference. The big thing here is I usually eat a lot of salt in my diet anyway, so that may be helping me as far as absorption goes. The second one, lacrosse ball. Okay, I use a tennis ball, but the idea is just to find your trigger points and lie on them until they disappear. You can do this on your glutes while you're sitting down. You can tack and stretch on your hamstrings while you're sitting down, and even on your feet. Feet are highly neglected, and so doing it while you're sitting down is a perfect way to combine the two. And the third one is executive stretches. So your minimum therapeutic dose is two minutes for any stretch you do. But he's talking about doing hip flexors while you're at the desk on the computer. He's talking about getting your ankle up, rotating, getting the ball in there. There's a whole other bunch of other ones plus resources that he points everybody to. It's very interesting, and if you're a desk jockey or not, I think you should check it out because Kelly Starrett is an absolute gun from mobilitywad.com. I cannot recommend that stuff highly enough. It has made a big difference into my posture and how I actually recover when I'm off the bike. Now, the quote from the top of the show, it is Sir Brailsford. Yes, he is in the news again, 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 and again. I'll tell you why I think he is in just a moment, but this is a clip from the interview that I took that first quote from, and I've got to say it made a lot of sense to me. Well, I think when you boil it all down, there's a lot of, you know, people make things very, very complicated and possibly overcomplicated, and I think if there is one word to uh, that a team could take on board, for me, it would be clarity, because I think you've got, you know, you, you've got to understand that you've got a clarity about the purpose. What are we trying to do? Do you understand the demands of the events? You're trying to really understand the demands of the events that you, you're trying to win. Um, have you got an outcome that everybody buys into and everybody's absolutely clear about what it is they're doing? But then on an individual basis, is everybody absolutely clear about their role, their responsibility, about the structure, about the tactics? And, and if there's a little bit of uh, uh, clarity that isn't right, there's some blurred edges, if you like, then your performance won't be optimal. So I think a lot of people who work in coaching or managing, etc., um, can go a very, very long way with uh, just checking all the time to see if there is absolute clarity about everything that is being done and stress testing the strategy, stress testing the tactics and making sure everybody's, everybody's um, clear. I hope you get something from that. I don't think he really cares who wins the tour as long as it's a Sky person. So even Port, if he was flying, I'm sure he would throw him in there. But in this interview itself, I'll link to it so you can check it out. He goes on to talk about Twitter having an effect on the editorial of all press 
to do with cycling and to do with Sky Sport and the way that people are really starting to dig in and attack Sky and to try and find any holes in their armour. It's very interesting the way that he mentions this because he must be heavily monitoring it and I think he's dropping himself into media because he wants to try and control the message. He's trying to control the narrative of Sky. It's basically the only thing he can't control by being the boss of Sky because it is so free with social media these days that it's just the messages can spread so quickly. Anybody can get to anybody else as far as getting their message heard, whether it is valid or not. He thinks this is affecting editorial. He's even hired David Welsh to follow the team around And I think this is just too contrived and it's not going to work. So it will be interesting to see where this goes and how much he can keep this up and whether I'm talking about him next week. And that's it. So till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. (laughs) 